No, no, no. I've got a bit of a cold, but I'm feeling better and I've, I've had my medication, so I'm ready to go. My voice doesn't normally sound like this, you see. <laughs> we got medicated Jack today. Yeah, you do. Hey, this is Jeremy Jung, and in this episode of Software Sessions, I'm talking to Jack Ellis about rebuilding the Fathom Analytics platform. We talk about how it works and what tools were used to build it, including serverless technology like AWS Lambda functions. We go into how they're able to track unique page views without using cookies. And we also talk about how and why they rewrote the application not just once, but twice. Finally, we talk about how you can migrate a production application without having downtime. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jack, and I hope you do as well. Jack, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Jeremy. So first to start off, for those who aren't familiar with Fathom, could you kind of explain what it is and and how it's different from something like Google Analytics? Yeah, so the biggest difference between Fathom and Google is that we're a simple, privacy-focused analytics platform. Emphasis on the simple. We all know how complex Google Analytics is. Um, So our aim is to be a one-stop place that you can hop into click on a few filters and get all the data you need without having to go through all the different tabs and pages. And then the second part of that is the privacy-focused piece. A lot of people are losing trust in Google after all of the scandals they're having. And people are wondering, should we trust Google with our data? Does Google know too much? Should we opt for a platform where their business relies on privacy? I mean, Google is fundamentally an advertising company. Let's not kid ourselves here. Um, So... In order for us to be a sustainable company, we have to focus on privacy. And uh, for a lot of people, that's the kind of company they want to deal with. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of a a trend lately where there's kind of more and more, I don't know if you would call it backlash, but um, a little bit of pushback in terms of the assumption that, hey, companies taking all of our data and saving all of it and tracking us all over the web and all this stuff, that this is kind of just a thing we have to accept and a thing that's like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. But I feel like there's there's more and more products like Fathom where people are saying like, well, does it does it really have to be that way? Yeah, people are getting, I mean, I would call it a backlash. People are getting sick of big tech doing various things like this. And I'm not talking about all big tech. I mean, I, I'm definitely, I'm not the anti-big tech guy. I'm the anti-big tech doing shitty things guy. That's who right. I am. <laughs> so when we have Google who are doing, I mean, we're, we're speculating at this point. When, when the privacy scandals happen with Google, we don't know about them until they hit the press, right? right. So it's all speculation, and I have got to be careful with what I say. <laughs> but but the, the, um, the overall theme is that people are losing trust in Google for good reason, and um, they don't want to keep sending data to Google. And we're seeing people break away from Google Mail and everything else. And I think it's a, it's a good move, and, and there's a trend in privacy for good reason. Because all this Cambridge Analytica stuff with Facebook and and everything else, people are becoming more concerned. Right, right. And I I think that's only going to increase more and more because it seems like the the time till the next scandal seems to be getting more and more frequent. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, You're right there. So, Fathom, when when was it originally started? When was the project originally created? Right, you're testing my memory here. So, (laughs) uh, my partner, Paul Jarvis, tweeted out an idea back in 2018. This was before any of these privacy-focused analytics platforms existed. He tweeted out a screenshot. I mean, he's a designer first, right? So he starts with the design. Uh, It was a simple screenshot, um, simple analytics, and 
it blew up and loads of people were interested. People were replying, favoriting, retweeting, all of that jazz. And um, and he was thinking, well, there's clearly an interest for this kind of thing. And that's where it started, really. And then it moved from screenshot on Twitter. I forget if they built it or if they went straight to the landing page, because I, I can say that Paul will usually start with, when he's got an idea, he'll put up a landing page to, to see what the interest is. Mm. So it wouldn't surprise me if he put up a landing page first. But I know that they had a lot of people in, in the thousands um, sign up within 24 hours oh wow because i was working with paul on pico at the time which which has recently been acquired by ghost as of a few days ago actually i don't know if you know about that but um we were working on pico at the time and paul was just telling me how crazy it was so the original co-founder was danny van guden um the landing page would have gone up then they would have built the open source github repo written in golang and released that and then that blew up and then the github repo blew up so um yeah, that's how it all started, really. And then it went on Product Hunt, got a ton of traction. People were self-hosting it on uh, DigitalOcean and everything else. And then, yeah, it blew up. Yeah, so it, it sounds like Paul, he just put out that tweet and put out that landing page, and a ton of people were interested. So he kind of realized, like, oh, wow, there really is a market here, and just kind of ran with it. Oh, exactly. And it's an interest of his. I mean, I can't speak for Paul, obviously, but he will typically be scratching his own itch. In this example, he was sick of his analytics platform. He just wants to see the basics. And um, and then apparently loads of other people do too. And now we're there, it's clear why. I mean, I've, I've used Google Analytics, analytics before. And uh, unless you're getting really heavy into the advanced marketing side of things, you don't need Google Analytics. You really don't. And my apologies, by the way, I've got a... I've got a fantastic cold going on, so my my words are merging. But um, but yeah, so unless you're doing you know targeted campaigns that sort of thing, you don't need Google Analytics. You just don't. Yeah, it's like most people they just want to know uh, how many people are coming to my site and where are they coming from, right? Exactly, and and maybe a few extra things. So how many people clicked play on my podcast? How many people joined my newsletter? And th those are okay to track in aggregate. So our stance is that we are okay with tracking people on a non-individual basis, aka we have 1,000 people who looked at our site from the United States today. Um, we're okay with that because we're not profiling individuals. We're not storing personal data. We don't need to be. So we focus on the trends rather than the this person did this, this, and this, which is, which is kind of creepy if you think about it. Yeah, so you're saying on Google Analytics, you could maybe actually drill down to an individual person and see, like, where did they travel on my site? Yeah, and, and obviously this functionality is amazing. And we, like, it's, it's amazing functionality, but it's creepy. I'm not saying it's not useful to, to know that in some cases, but should you really be, uh, I've got to be careful about exploiting your visitors, knowing that much stuff about them without their consent. I mean, now we've got the cookie banners, which are just awful. Um, so, But at least the users know that they're being tracked beyond their wildest dreams so yeah though i feel like you know when you make that cookie banner mandatory and you see it pop up people just tune it out now they're kind of like oh, oh just click this away right yeah and it, it annoys people and i tell you the funny thing we're seeing as well is some websites will actually block people from the eu because of gdpr that's my favorite mm, they say yeah. we're not even going to try um, I forget which website it was, whether it was Forbes or something. They have yeah. so much stuff going on and uh, they just they just think we're not even going to try with this. Yeah, I, um, I'm sure it's changed by now, but I remember when the GDPR first got put into effect, the LA Times, you would go to their, their site from Europe and it would just say like, sorry, you can't you can't look at our stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it's crazy how much how much these websites do. 
I mean, you just open developer tools and you have a look and you can see all the stuff that's firing and it's absolutely mind blowing. Oh yeah, for sure. More than half of the payload of the page is just analytics rather than the actual content you're <laughs> yeah. trying to show. Oh yeah. Isn't that ridiculous? Yeah. It's pretty wild. So I guess another thing that I'd kind of like to go into is one of the things that Fathom does differently is I believe you don't use cookies, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're cookie free as of oh earlier this year, we did a big article on it. Yeah. That was a, that was an interesting project. It's not easy. You know, most people rely on cookies and going the cookie-less way is hard. Have you read the, are you familiar with the article that I'm talking about? Uh, I am familiar with the article, but for our audience, can you explain like at a high level sort of how it works? Yeah. So we, we landed on using SHA-256 hashes to, to identify users. And the way we do it is that we've got, this is where it's quite, quite hard to articulate how we do it. That's why it's best, best read in the article. Uh, goes yeah, yeah. And I suppose in a way, the easiest way of explaining it is it's, it's fingerprinting, but we don't keep historical log of the fingerprints so a fingerprint will exist you can't decrypt this i mean it's, it's a one-way hash it's um crazy complex hash that you just can't break unless you've got the 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 chances of you cracking that hash are we actually went into it the computing power you'd need to crack these hashes is just ridiculous but uh, we will store the hash with a page view but then the minute a, the page view comes in again for the same user in the same database transaction we will remove the previous hash so that we have no way of building up a visitor log of the pages they viewed and we don't have any sort of database transaction history or anything like that so you can't build up a a route that the user's taken. And that was important to us because even though we're obviously not going to do any of this, we still don't want it to be possible to say, we can see that user one did this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. We didn't want that. So we spent a long time going into making it impossible for us really, because people have got to trust us. And yeah, that was important to do. Yeah. And so essentially you're taking a fingerprint based off of the user's IP and some sort of other information. Yeah. So off the top of my head, and I mean, we've changed it since that article. We'd already come up with quite a complex way in the first place, but we introduced multiple sorts now. So we chuck a sort in there that's kept for, I believe, about 24 hours. So we have no history of that sort. So mm. the, um, the sort it changes by day. And I think we've now got it that the sort is different based on the last couple of digits of the IP or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we've got, I think, you know, hundreds of different sorts, or probably thousands of different sorts at this point. So it just gets ridiculously complicated. And yeah, and so it, yeah, it's a fingerprint of those pieces. And uh, honestly, I can't remember the, it all off the top of my head, but you can, uh, you can read about it on our blog on usefathom.com. For sure. Yeah, we'll get a link to that in the show notes. And essentially, though, it's like you're taking certain pieces of information that are unique to the that user, whether that's the IP address or some kind of uh, fingerprint from the browser, and then you're applying a one-way hash and making sure that you have no way of going backwards and, and retrieving the information you originally yes. had. And that last bit is the, the most critical piece of the whole equation. Because when you talk about fingerprinting, if there's a way that you can establish who these people are, or you can reverse it to personal information, then you get into very muddy waters. And uh, we were clear from the start that we don't, even though you know, ethical company, privacy focused company, we still don't want to even be playing in that area. So it's absolutely critical that no one can get the data from the hash. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have it, then you can't use it, right? <laughs> and that's just it. The next thing I kind of want to go into is 
the very first version of uh, Fathom that was made by Danny, you mentioned that it was written in, in Go. How was that application built? Like, was it a single service or um, was it a bunch of separate applications? Like, how was that? Like okay, that? so let's if we move away from the actual code base and talk about its existence in software as a service in the SaaS world, the way that that was built, there was a billing application. And once you signed up, it would provision, and I believe it used Puppet. Don't don't quote me on this, mm-hmm. but it had some sort of automation where it would create a directory and uh, handle all the DNS and everything like that. And I believe it would set up a SQLite file and then the compiled Go application. And it would set that up across uh, one of the, I believe it was three um, servers and then... And then, yeah, and then you had a series of folders and they were spread across multiple servers. And and that was, yeah, that was how it was done. Effectively, he'd taken the open source version and just come up with a, I mean, I would say hacky way of deploying it. And it worked. It worked fine. It just wasn't my way. I mean, we're now branching into into my refactor and my rebuild here. But um, I wouldn't have chosen to do it that way, having it split across multiple servers. So, yeah, that's how it existed in the first iteration. People would sign up, then then there's, it would be the open source version would just be provisioned and hosted for them on one of our servers. And, and so would it be a separate instance for every customer? So you would take the open source version and let's say, you know, I had a website and I was a new customer, I signed up, then this, whether it's Puppet or some other provisioning tool would actually install a new instance of the software and create a SQLite instance for me? Yeah, that's right. And it and it was, um, yeah, that was pretty much it. And I, I am a bit out of my depth talking about this because I only glimpsed the code. I glimpsed the code enough to say, I'm going to rebuild this. Um, that's really about as far as I went. So yeah, it, automation was in place. It set up multiple instances and it was spread across mm-hmm. multiple servers. Yeah. And this was all running on DigitalOcean. So these were hosted on just virtual machines, right? DigitalOcean and also... One, not one-on-one, surely not one-on-one. It was some other ser- um, server mm-hmm. in the EU. Hmm. Interesting. Then you were kind of talking about how you made the decision to rewrite Fathom and looking at what was there before, what made you decide that this was the the right move? Yeah. So when I came on board, it was really a case that, I mean, so they were having uptime issues at the time. So they had to put out a lot of server fires and I wasn't, I wasn't about that life. That's not something that I want to be involved in. So I came in and I thought, well, if we have any issues with provisioning when when new customers join any um, new setup any bugs or any uptime issues i wouldn't really be in a position to handle them because i'm not familiar with the setup and um yeah and it would just be me having to learn about stuff to fix them and i, I have no i have no doubts and, and people listening we're software engineers we are capable of learning anything um but it was really a case of how long will it take me to become productive within this this setup within this environment and and for me it's going to be a few months so I'm going to have to spend a few months to be able to do basic debugging and um, any improvements and that sort of thing. And I, that's just not realistic. I consult for clients full time. So am I going to be learning about all of this setup and then doing that? And it's just not realistic. Mm-hmm. So comparatively, I could rebuild the entire thing using Laravel in, in the less time and I've got the experience already. So it's all good learning about something and then building it and saying, oh, I've done it, but you haven't got the experience. So you're then going to have to go through all this learning that you haven't had. Whereas with PHP, it's like over 13 years now. I've seen all the, all the bugs. I've run into all, mm-hmm. the, all the fun stuff. So it was, it was a no-brainer for me, really. 
and uh, I managed to rebuild it in I think less than two months. I think it was something like that oh, wow. um, because I'm more productive in in PHP and Laravel. So yeah, that's that's actually an interesting point because you know a lot of times the narrative you hear around these types of conversations is people say like never never rebuild. You should work with what's there because it's already working. But uh, you brought up a good point that. If you, you spend the time to learn that existing system, even if you do figure it out, you still don't have the, the knowledge base of that, that stack. Like oh, you yeah. aren't necessarily an expert in Go, even though you may have figured out enough to like, okay, how can I like make some changes to this application? But you're still missing that you mentioned like 13 years of PHP experience or uh, all your experience with Laravel, things like that. And those are the things that you you really wouldn't get if you had stuck with the existing application. Exactly, Jeremy. Exactly. And I do I do remember an article, I believe it was the CEO of Stack Overflow, talking about how with your existing system, you know the bugs, you're going to create new bugs when you rebuild it and all that jazz. And honestly, it depends where you are within your business or where you are with the software. If this was a product that had been live for five years, and it was huge. It was tremendous, huge code base. I'd be thinking twice. Right. We weren't dealing with a tremendous code base. We we really weren't. I mean, now it's definitely bigger now. We've got a lot more features and we're working on newer things. But back then, it, it made more sense to rebuild it. It was it was early days. It was the first year of Fathom operating as a business. And yeah, it, and obviously it's always a risk. But um, it was a calculated risk. And I knew I could rebuild it quite quickly. And and let's be real, reading Go when you when you're a programmer, it's not it's not hard. So um, I could read it and digest it, and then convert it to PHP, and uh, and then yeah, and then I was more productive once that had been converted, as expected. So it paid off. Yeah. So um, I kind of want to go into about how you were saying you were looking at the Go and you were rewriting the code in PHP. Um, was this sort of a, a gradual process where you were replacing parts of the application and as you replaced them, putting them in um, production? Or was it more like you rewrote the whole thing first? So I rewrote the whole thing first, really. The biggest part of Fathom is the data collection, is the page view collection. Yeah, the rest of it, well, you're taking me back down memory lane here. So the migration from the Go code base to the Laravel code base once it was built. So I rebuilt, there are three versions. There's the first version, which was the Golang version. And then there's the second version, which we're talking about now. And that is the first rebuild in Laravel. So I rebuilt the whole thing, billing application and everything else. I then wrote some migration scripts to migrate all of the data out the SQLite files and into the new database. And that was bloody fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was interesting. So I migrated all the data. And then top of my head, how did we do it? And then I believe we copied. So once it went live, anything going to the old servers, we would then go back and copy over to be processed by the the new servers. Off the top of my head is, is what I remember for that migration. And this migration was back early 2019. So I'm definitely less clear on what we did exactly here. But um, we avoided downtime by doing that. And there's always going to be DNS cache. Oh, DNS cache. Yeah, that's uh, that's good fun. But um, we knew to go back to the page views table and copy them over. So um, that's how we avoided the, the downtime loss there. And we put up a notification in the dashboard and just said to people, look, the data is going to be slightly behind, but we're not losing any of the data, basically. So had a few people, you know, saying, you know, when's it going to be done? And that's fine. No one really cared. As long as we keep the collection endpoint online and people's page views aren't lost, people don't care. The dashboard isn't as important as 
there's their data being collected. So we had the flexibility there. Yeah, that's interesting. In a way, it, it, even though things are behind, so in, in some ways you could consider that to be a form of, um, I don't know if you would call it downtime, but a period where things are not current. Um, but really the collection part never had downtime. And let's let's be real here. If you If your data was behind by six hours or 12 hours to one day, do you really care that much? That's that's the question. If you know your data is going to be there eventually, because remember, we're dealing in trends here. Most of our customers are looking at a seven-day period or a month period. People aren't upset if they can't see their data for a few hours. Obviously, right. that's not our aim. That's not what I'm saying. But if we are doing a migration that's going to improve things, speed things up, most people are, are really chill. So. For sure, yeah, it's a little different than somebody who is like running an e-commerce site and <laughs> can buy things for a few hours, right? Oh, that would be a yeah, completely different game. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of want to dive a little bit more into your migration from SQLite to MySQL um, because it, that sounds like quite an effort because you had individual uh, SQLite instances for all your customers yes, before, that's right? right? So. How, because you're, you're kind of moving from uh, a separate install to, I guess, a multi-tenant single database, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, crikey. Okay, so, I mean, this this was, not, you know, obviously I joked that it was fun. Um, <laughs> the way we did it was that we crawled through all the directories of our customers, okay, and then we, we converted. So we went through the SQLite. We knew the database structure for the SQLite files. And we went through all of the stats and all we did was migrate them into the new structure. So we had host names and path names. We wanted them centralized. We didn't want them to be, say, text entries in the page stats table. We wanted them to be reusable foreign keys for, for obvious reasons. Um, so we had to go through and then I think we migrated the host names and the path names and then we migrated the data into our new, our new table format. So really it was just a, it was a few loops. If you think about it, looping through the directories. And then once we're in a directory, we loaded up the SQLite file. And then we went through all of the tables and then just migrated it. And uh, the, the big complication was actually when, so we had some users in the early days who didn't actually have site IDs. They just had a single site because Fathom hasn't always supported multiple websites. So that was a bit more tricky, but you know, it's just, it's just a workaround. You know, you just keep hacking at it and and it worked and it migrated beautifully. We did have one customer um, who has a lot of user-generated pages and it was in the, oh, I'd say probably in the millions. So that was an interesting migration. But uh, apart from that, no, we got it done. And it sounds like one of the the key differences is that, you know, in MySQL, you had to put everybody in the same database. So did you have like a specific column, I guess, for the foreign key that you, I guess you mentioned the site IDs, was that the main addition and the, the rest of the schema was about the same? Yeah. So the big thing here is that everyone has their own subdomain. So it might be jeremy.usesfathom.com, jack.usesfathom.com. Mm. That was how you would distinguish between the two. So that was that was a good starting point. And then when they didn't have a site ID, we just generated a site ID for them. And that was absolutely fine. And that was an interesting thing as well, is some people, we, we had to do the migration so that people didn't have to upgrade their embed code, their JavaScript code. Mm, okay. So some people, they were using their old URL, which might have been the jeremy.usersfathom.com, mm -hmm. but they weren't setting their site ID. So we had to be backward compatible. But I mean, when you know all of these things, we know how to build them. The big thing was identifying the, not the limitations, but identifying the challenges before doing the migration. Once you've identified the challenges and the issues, 
it's easy. But that's the that's the, that's the hard part is defining those those things in the first place. And once we did, we um we were ready to handle them. Yeah. So was the the schema in the new version basically the same, other than you know that that one additional column? It was very similar. Let's just say that very similar. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned a little bit earlier about DNS caching. Can you kind of explain a little bit about why that's an issue and and sort of how you dealt with that? Yeah, so the reason it's an issue is that it means that traffic for people with the old cache or with any cache for the old server, their traffic would be sent to the old server rather than to the new server. And that means that any page views coming into the old server wouldn't be aggregated on the new server. So we'd, we'd be missing data. I mean, we did talk about this and we were thinking, this is on a different version, but we were thinking, should we do some fancy thing that if data comes into the old server, we send it to the new server via a separate request? And uh, we did talk yeah. about things like that, mm-hmm. but it gets ridiculous. And I think we always opt for the simple solution. And it was just, let's just let it accumulate in the page views table, and then we'll write a script to migrate it, you know, bit by bit in the cron job or something. And mm-hmm. uh, that ended up working beautifully. And then once all the requests had stopped coming into the old servers, we just turned them off. Yeah, so it basically you have a cron job and it just keeps migrating and migrating until uh, eventually the DNS switches over to the new server and the old server just stops getting requests, right? Exactly. And and honestly, the majority of um, requests did start going to the new server, um, but we still had a few going to the old server. The DNS cache wasn't awful. And you can, um, you can do things to reduce the... Oh, testing my memory here again, but you can do things to reduce the, um, the DNS cache, so... So at the time when you had both systems running, did you have to keep basically running two production instances that are fully loaded under the assumption that anybody could be talking to either one? So in in the migration we're currently talking about, the version one to version two, we had less customers. So the scale wasn't as significant as it is nowadays. So um, back then it wasn't as big of an issue and we were running on three VPSs, so we weren't ready for scale anyway. If we are to talk about the migration from V2 to V3, yes, we were fully provisioned with our old servers um, because we don't know how many people are going to keep their DNS cache and everything. For sure. We had serverless provisioned on our new version, and then we had our Heroku still fully scaled up for our old version. Mm, So you probably had an expensive bill that month. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. And uh, we had uh, obviously had the the database was uh, high availability. We had to keep that online. And yeah, it it was a fun bill, but... Those days are behind us, so we're good. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about how, you know, you started on VPSs and you were saying like, well, you don't really want to have to manage servers. So you moved on to using Heroku. So can you kind of talk a little bit about that decision and what was good and what were the challenges you faced with that? Yeah, so the way we started on that, I said to Paul, look, how much would we pay for DevOps? And Paul had actually got a quote of, I think, $1,000 a month for someone to do DevOps, which is reasonable. But um, for a a two-person company, do we really want to be paying $1,000 for someone to do DevOps? Well, absolutely not. So it's cheaper to go with Heroku because they do DevOps for us. So um, it was, yeah, it was a really easy decision, actually. The um, Heroku out of the door was really good, you know, provisioned Redis, uh, easy to scale dynos, monitoring, all this jazz. If a dyno dies, a new dyno gets reprovisioned and everything else. I mean, that's great. And it was, it was great. The... The, we had uh, notifications set up, so if we had too much load, we could scale. And the database, the high availability database was beautiful. Uh, if our database hardware failed, it just rolled over to a standby instance. You know, this is stuff we love. 
Yeah, in terms of challenges, predicting cost was obviously one because we did have fun jobs that ran to aggregate data that we couldn't necessarily predict with the costs. We also didn't have access to auto scaling unless we were to pay for the the performance dynos and they start at $250 a month, which uh, mm. I don't know why they do that. I mean, maybe that's just a way of them pushing you into a higher tier. But um, yeah, really, we weren't happy about that. We felt that we should be able to have auto scale no matter how much we're paying. And then also the tiers between the the add-ons. So the Redis, we were paying a stupid amount for a tiny amount of space. And I always had this ridiculous worry that we never actually um, encountered. But I always thought, what if we have so many page views that it exceeds our Redis, our Redis storage, and then we can't, what do we do then? So, and I had actually come up with this plan that I was going to use the Redis, Redis um, add-on, but then I was going to fall back to uh, SQS in the event that it was at maximum capacity. Mm. I thought I was all clever doing that. But, um, and then Vapor came out and Vapor solved all of these problems with scaling that we were thinking about with Heroku. And, uh, and that moved us to AW, well, we were already on AWS with Heroku, but um, it moved us to Vapor, which... Uh, we had no idea Vapor was coming. So when it came, it was a bit of a, a mind-blowing experience just announced at Laracon. No one knew, knew it was coming, right? And uh, and uh, I said, to pull this solves all of our problems. It really does. So that changed everything. And that it felt like a fresh new start. And then we said, well, I, I'd learned a lot. I'd learned um, you know, better ways to aggregate data, better ways to, um, to do the um, data collection, and everything else so it seemed like it was an opportunity for another rebuild and again we are still early early days and um if there's enough technical debt because remember i built this in probably two months it was mm-hmm. pretty rushed if there's enough technical debt to justify a rebuild that's when i say you should do it it is a complicated trade-off and it's always a risk but mm-hmm. um, having done it there's no regrets and it was the best move to make so this third rebuild that was actually a full rewrite. It wasn't just like a, a migration from Heroku to Vapor. No, it was it was a full rebuild. I think it was just you know when you've got so many pieces that you you just look at it and you think I I can do so much better than this. And you know Paul was doing a new dashboard, and with version two we actually had it. So this is a silly example, but with the Ajax requests we had it so that all of the box data, so the uh, page view, uh, sorry, the content data, the referrer data, and then the live stats. It came in a single request, mm. and that was much slower. In version three, we broke it down into multiple requests that resolved in a stupid quick time. So um, that was an example of what we did. But uh, no, honestly, I think it was just, I looked at everything. I looked at the aggregation. I looked at how the page views were collected, and I just thought, no, we can do better than this. And mm. uh, we bro- we changed how the jobs worked. We changed... Um, we changed loads of stuff. I mean, it was a fundamental overhaul to make it faster and uh, just to make it a better system. And mm-hmm. again, we were still at the point where doing that was was likely going to be easier and uh, cheaper on our time than than doing it with the current system. And I mean, you're, you're a software engineer. You know how it is. Modifying code can often take longer than rebuilding stuff, which For is sure. very hard to explain to clients sometimes because mm-hmm. as soon as you mention a rebuild, everyone panics right but the thing with us is it's it's down to us you know paul trusts me to make the right decision with the architecture and and the rebuilds and stuff and and i trust myself so Mm -hmm. yeah the the risk paid off it's always a risk but it paid off for sure and in this case it sounds like there was a lot of things that you wanted to change in terms of technical debt or just things that you saw like well we can do this a lot better 
do you think you would have still come to this decision if Laravel Vapor, that serverless solution, wasn't in place? Like, would you have rewritten it? We would have. We would have modified the existing code base just because it's already working. Yeah, because whenever you do a server migration or any sort of migration, there's mm-hmm. always a ton of stress. You're basically saying, I want a ton of stress in my life. Mm-hmm. My life's too easy to the stress. <laughs> so um, we would have carried on modifying it, I think. I would have modified the... Because in version two, the way we did our aggregation was we actually locked rows. So we went through some rows, we locked them, and then we processed all the locked rows and then removed them as they were processed. Um, that doesn't scale too well. Mm, no shit, Sherlock, right? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it doesn't scale well. Yeah, so that was locking rows in your your MySQL database, and you were running into a lot of uh, lock contention, I guess, right? Yeah, well, this wasn't so. This wasn't a row level lock in the typical sense, which would have probably been a, a better way in hindsight. But I actually just updated a column to lock them. It's a super scrappy, basic mm-hmm. way. Again, this was built in under two months, mm-hmm. but uh, no, it didn't. It didn't scale well. And uh, what happened was, if there were any rows that are locked that means that the the task in the current job doesn't run because it says oh we're busy with these some are locked mm-hmm. so what does that mean that means that if any any server issues happen you know an error then the the rows stay locked but they don't get processed so we had one of those and just i had to debug that a few times and we were just running into more issues than it was worth you know mm-hmm. so um so then i said look i need to i've got a, a fresh set of eyes on this i'm just going to rebuild it but no it's an interesting question would we have done a rebuild had Laravel Vapor not come out, I yeah, we probably wouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could have been. that's interesting. So it sounds like the release of this kind of the serverless platform, you saw sort of the potential for a lot of things to change, a lot of things to improve. And specifically because of those features, that's what really drove you to go like, okay, this is worth rewriting. Oh, 100%. Yeah, we saw what was possible. And, um, you know, and we don't want to be receiving emails saying we need to increase our scale. Because we like marketing on the fact that, hey, we can literally handle billions of page views. With version two, we could, but we had to have some manual intervention mm-hmm. for us to scale it up. You know how it is. Mm-hmm. Version three, send us a billion page views. We'll handle it. You know? So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Could you kind of briefly explain what Laravel Vapor is for those who aren't familiar with it? Yeah, so Vapor is a serverless platform for PHP applications. A serverless being you don't have to manage any servers. Um, auto scaling on demand. There's no minimum provision. It runs on AWS Lambda, which is, as you know, a serverless uh, function as a service. And um, and yeah, it focuses on the on AWS's serverless offering. And what it does is it acts as effectively as a GUI for managing the infrastructure. So instead of you having to configure your Lambda functions and everything else, Vapor does it for you. It sets up the networks, manages the firewall, all of that stuff. And uh, you pay $39 a month, which is an absolute steal, and it does it all for you. And and we can just click around and not know anything about it, and it's it's truly beautiful. That's Yeah, that's, that's interesting because it's sort of like having someone who's an expert in provisioning systems, whether that's like Puppet or Ansible or something, but just having, you know, a service kind of take care of that for you. Oh, and I was so happy seeing this. And uh, it's funny because I remember I'm pretty sure that uh, Taylor Otwell got stick for not releasing it for free. And I'm thinking to myself, it's $39 a month. Are you absolutely crazy? This is a bargain. <laughs> Who wouldn't yeah. pay for this? And uh, they're quick on the updates. And, and I just love it. So I, the, other, the other evening, I wanted to create a new staging environment for our main application. And all I have to do is run a command line, say, uh, like Vapor ENV staging. And it creates a staging environment of the exact same setup as your production environment. And it does it in a few, a few seconds. 
That's fantastic. And it's all yeah. configured for, uh, via YAML files. And yeah, it's, it's great. It's, uh, it's, it's a game changer in the PHP world. It really is. So would you kind of say that somebody who was not too familiar with AWS could actually use Vapor and it could set everything up and you wouldn't actually need to like know too much about how to navigate the AWS console or how to deal with its API, things like that? Oh, 100%. I mean, I'm, my AWS knowledge is limited. I'm, I'm certainly no expert. I obviously know my way around a little bit, but um, yeah, it's, it's for people that just want to focus on their applications and don't want to worry about the security configurations and, and everything else. Because there are a lot of people that do worry that they haven't done their security configurations right. Mm-hmm. And that's the last thing you want is to make some stupid error with AWS. So $39 a month, they do it for you. And yeah. I'm not paid to say this, by the way. I just, <laughs> I just absolutely love it. Yeah. No, I mean, it sounds great to me because like for, for me as someone who um, I'm not super familiar with AWS, but I've kind of gone around the console and played around a little bit. And it's like, it's super overwhelming. There's like so much in there, so much to learn just in the uh, the permission stuff alone. Yeah. The, the IAM and different users and firewall. Yeah. Just no, you can, you can learn it, but just for me, no, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess the next thing I'd like to sort of talk about is, you know, you did this big rewrite, this big migration. What were the things that you were moving from? Like to give you an example, you know, you had the Redis uh, instance in Heroku before. I'm assuming you moved to Elasticash. Another example would be you said you moved on to using simple queue service. So I'm kind of trying to get a picture of what are the you know, services that you started using in place of other things that you had you, before? Yeah, you asked some good questions, Jeremy, I must say. Um, so, yeah, so for our, our queue, because whenever a page view comes in, surprise, surprise, we don't hit the database right away. Who mm-hmm. knew? We, we <laughs> used the queue before we used Redis. Now we use simple queue service, which is pretty, I mean, I don't want to say infinitely because that would technically be wrong and someone will <laughs> tweet me, give me abuse, but we, we consider it to be infinitely scalable for our use case. So we don't worry about the Redis limit being hit. And then um, Simple Queue Service now handles all of our page views um, and, can, and can scale to ridiculous amounts. Um, we used to have a few Redis uh, instances. We actually had Redis in our main API. We had, and this was our private API, we had Redis for the um, the caching of data, like, you know, the typical cache you use in an application. Mm-hmm. Then we had Redis for the queue. And we were paying for each of those, which just makes me laugh in hindsight. So um, now we just have Redis, which runs across our, our entire application, and we store um, sessions in one of the sections, and then we store just generic cache in the other section. The reason we've done that is it just clears out the generic cache and not the sessions, because mm-hmm. obviously we don't want that. And then with regards to the, the worker dynos, yeah, they just run on Lambda. The Vapor does something there to to have a simple queue service does something there. Again, I don't know the details because I don't need to know the details. This is the beauty of it. But um, it spins up Lambda in the background and uh, Lambda's pretty much, well, Lambda has replaced our web dynos and, and worker dynos. So instead of paying a minimum amount each month for the dynos with Heroku, we're now paying on demand for the, the Lambda um, invocations or executions, whatever, whatever they're called. Yeah, so I guess with um, Heroku, with those worker dynos, was that sort of similar to having uh, cron jobs, I guess, on a, a regular machine? Um, so the worker dynos actually would just listen to the queue. That's all they did. Uh, okay. So they just then processed the queue. The, the, the problem being that we'd have to pay $25, and, and this, sounds, this does sound small talking nowadays, but $25 a month 
that have to be running 24 7. Comparatively, now Lambda isn't run unless there are page views to be processed. Mm -hmm. So, so you've set up uh, within AWS that whenever something comes into the queue, that triggers a Lambda function to be called and start processing the data. Yeah, and and we we didn't set anything. Vapor did this all for us. But mm. That's what happens. Yeah. And for the initial request, I'm trying to picture that when somebody goes to a website that has Fathom on it, I'm assuming there's a piece of JavaScript that's talking to your API. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So the JavaScript file is served via CloudFront, and then it calls our um, our collection endpoint. And so this collection endpoint, when it was running on Heroku, I'm assuming that there was some kind of web server in front of it. How does that look like in the world of Lambda and of Vapor? Yeah, so I'll talk you through the differences. So with Heroku, we actually had three applications. We had the collector, API, and then I believe the the billing, I think. So the reason they were separate is because my logic was always, if something happens with the API and it goes down for whatever reason, I want them to be separate. I want the collector to stay online. Um, so it made sense to have them as separate applications. The collector was also a separate code base. Again, because if I push something, if something managed to sneak into production, I don't know how, but if it did, I don't want the collector to go offline. Again, as I mentioned previously in the call, we don't want things to go down. Our customers care about the data collection. We can afford some dashboard downtime. We can't afford the collector downtime. So it actually ran on a on Lumen. I don't know if you know Lumen. It's a micro framework for Laravel. So it ran on Lumen, separate, separate code base, and then it um, yeah just queued things up and worked through them. And now coming from that into Vapor, we have a single code base. But here's the cool thing about Vapor. We can have multiple environments for the same code base. So what does that mean? It means that we can configure the, the Lambda runtime with the different memory and, uh, and background work and memory. We, can, we give less memory to the, um, to the collector because it doesn't need as much. Whereas our heavier requests on the dashboard, so say the background um, requests on the, on the main application that the dashboard utilizes, that needs a bit more a bit more RAM to do stuff. So we can reduce our costs by optimizing per environment, which is a huge thing. That's a big advantage of Lambda. So yeah, so we move from multiple code bases to one code base, and we um, we optimize based on the environment. And in terms of when someone makes a request, uh, is it going through something like Amazon's API gateway, or is there some other way that you're able to field the web requests? Well, this is subject to change, but at the moment, it goes through their um, Elastic Load Balancer. Um, this may change, I mean, because AWS API gateway is expensive. Mm -hmm. So we opted not to use that. And um, we use just the Elastic Load Balancer, which has been more than uh, good enough for our needs. Mm -hmm. Maybe things will change because AWS just released the, the AWS API gateway pricing improvements, meaning that we can, I think it's $1 per million requests. So we'll see. I honestly, I don't think there's an advantage of using the API gateway over the uh, load balancer. I haven't seen it yet. And I'm, I'm going to dive into this more because I'm doing a course at the moment um, on serverless Laravel and I'm building it up and I'm going to go into this because you, you're sort of looking at it thinking, well, why would I use API gateway? Why wouldn't I just use the elastic load balance? Mm -hmm. So, and I've not yet seen a reason, but um, subject to change, of course. But. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, it sounds like the main thing you're looking for is, can I field a web request from you know my JavaScript, and then can that trigger a Lambda function, right? Yeah, and it, and it, I mean, yeah, the all the configuration from the request coming into the Lambda function, 
I do nothing with. Um, it's all done with vapor. I have no idea how they've done that. Mm. Um, and I don't need to know. Could I work it out? Yeah, I'm sure I could work it out. Could I do it? Yes, but I don't I don't need to know this. But um, it comes in, it, it calls a vapor function, and then it chucks the page view in the queue, and then all the magic's done. Mm-hmm. The next thing I'd like to ask about is how do you track the load on you know Redis and your database and things like that? How do you figure out yeah. whether you're sized right? Okay, so in, in the Vapor dashboard, we actually can monitor the uh, Redis. I mean, we're, we're averaging. I've just added a new node solely for redundancy. Um, but the Redis uptime is pretty damn good. I mean, we haven't had any issues with that. And we're averaging about 2 to 4% uh, CPU load. And here's the thing, though. We can do a lot more with the caching, and we're just getting into that. We're currently in a refinement period of our product development, and we're going to be doing a lot more caching. So I'm sure that that will go up. But, um, yeah, we monitor it from Vapor. And then with with RDS, you can actually set up you can set up alerts in Vapor, and they, they just do things with AWS. So um, if the CPU hits this and, and everything else. So with the RDS... Yeah, we've got some alert, um, alert alarms in place. But um, yeah, and this is another thing. We opted for a fixed size RDS as opposed to a serverless RDS. And one of the things that I do to avoid issues is I have limited the amount of background workers that run at any one time. Okay, So imagine we get a huge influx of views. They will just queue up in um, simple queue service. Mm-hmm. But we only have, I think, around 30 workers that run at any one time. The reason we do this is because I'd rather have a big backlog in a simple queue service than have simple queue service running a thousand concurrent mm-hmm. workers and just taking our database offline. And uh, I actually experienced that when trying to do the migration. I don't uh, think I realized how powerful simple queue service <laughs> is. And it took our um, it took our Heroku database offline. Yeah. Um, and I had to actually, well, we have high availability in place, so it, it, rolled, it rolled over, but that was an interesting time at the least. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of like figuring out you know what the limit was was it just sort of you you found out just during the migration or were there some tests you ran before to to figure out like what the limits of your database was yeah that's a very good question we started with aurora and i didn't think it scaled fast enough when you got sufficient load mm. and not a huge issue but the the price that they charge for aurora and they charge per uh, what is it called? Input uh, I slash O. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm I'm googling around. I'm thinking, how on earth? I mean, what is that? How can you even estimate the cost for that? Does that just mean per query? Does it mean? And I, I just got way too deep with that. And I'm not a a database ops guy. I'm not a what do they call them? The database, the DBAs. You know what I'm talking right, about. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not that guy. I'm not that girl. So I can't. I can't do that. Um, so we actually just thought, you know what, let's just go with the fixed size database. We'll overpay for it. We over-provision it intentionally mm-hmm. and we'll just roll with it. And um, yeah, we ended up with a, a bigger database and scaling it's easy and scaling is ridiculously quick. And then the first thing you're thinking about scaling a database is what about downtime? Well, here's the thing. They will actually upgrade the standby database first and then they'll roll over to it. And if there is any downtime, we've actually built it in so that if the background worker tries to hit your database to insert the page view into the database and the database is offline, it will then schedule it to not be retried for another, I think, five to 10 minutes, mm-hmm. which is which is great. And then sure, you build up a backlog, but we store the timing of everything within the um, initial payload that comes into 
SQS. So it's not like it's calculating the current time when it's processed because that would be a disaster. So um, so yeah, that's how we do it. And then we can scale up the database to whatever we want and, and we'll live. Mm-hmm. The main database load is probably coming from the aggregation, to be honest with you. And um, there's there's ways that we can optimize that still. Because all the page view collection does really is insert a, um, a record in. So mm-hmm. a few records. Yeah. So it sounds like you have basically two instances of the database that are fixed. And whenever you need to upgrade, you upgrade the, um, I guess the, you called it the standby, right? That's right. Yeah. And it just is it's there and ready to be upgraded. And we actually do that through AWS. Vapor does support scaling, but I don't think um, Vapor supports the high availability out of the box. For that, I did go into AWS and set up, but it's so easy. I mean, that's just a doddle. So, mm. yeah. Is, and for Redis, is that is that very similar? Does Vapor or AWS handle the availability for you? Yeah, I think so. Well, I know it's obviously a managed service, but in terms of if the Redis goes offline, um, I mean, like I say, it's a managed service, so I'm not too concerned. I'd imagine they'd spin something back up. And then worst case, our cache has to be regenerated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not, we've we've had our cache regenerated a few times and yeah, no concerns. We're not, I mean, you, you look at someone like Stripe, for them to regenerate their cache is hilarious because mm. they just got so much data. We're not at that point yet. And if we get to, well, when we get to that, we'll, we'll never, Stripe levels are, it's a multi-billion dollar company and mm-hmm. <laughs> different story and lots of payment data. But for sure, that, that is a different story. Their cache is ridiculous. And you see performance impact when their cache has to be regenerated. For us, um, for us, it's, you don't even notice it. Mm-hmm. And how are you tracking downtime or failure between any of your services? Uh, well, I think we're not doing anything crazy. I know Paul has monitoring, but Paul hasn't received an alert in, in like a year, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I mean, what have we got? We've got RDS. RDS is a managed service with uh, a failover in place in another region. So that's handled. Um, with Lambda, uh, Lambda's serverless. We don't have any servers to worry about. There's not mm-hmm. going to be the downtime. With Redis, I mean, that's a good question about Redis. I've never thought, is it possible for Redis to go down? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't think it is, but, you know, that's something for me to look into. But I don't I don't spend too much time worrying about that particular thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what else do we have? We have our email service, but all emails are sent through QWorker, which means they go into failed jobs, so that's fine. And no, there's we don't really stress about, about that kind of stuff because we're, we're pretty much, apart from you know, the database would consider ourselves to be pretty serverless. Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you will occasionally see whether it's Google cloud or AWS, it's not super common, but sometimes you'll have an announcement that says like, Oh, the instances in this region are down due to some problem. And, oh, yeah. um, yeah, it, it does happen. So we'll see what happens when, when, cause I mean, when that happens, like the half the internet is usually down. Yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> so we'll have to see what happens when, um, when that when that arises but we've For not sure. seen it yet but there is an argument you know why don't we have another region that our javascript file checks to see if the server loads if it doesn't we fire off to another region mm. there is an argument that we should do that For sure. who knows maybe we will you know you never say never yeah for sure so one thing like through all of this that we haven't really talked about is when somebody embeds fathom on their website um sort of what's the path that that call takes you know you said it talks to elastic load balancer and that goes to a lambda request and then where does it go from there 
talks to load balancer. Okay, so the page view comes in, goes through the load balancer, hits a lambda uh, function, and then it goes into straight into the queue. The queue then processes it, and then the background worker, the, the lambda function, will insert it into a page views table. Uh, and then every five minutes, we have a function that looks for finished page views or page views older than 15 minutes, and it sums them up and inserts them into page stats and referral stats. All the other data, like the country data, the browser data, is um, inserted when the page view gets put into the page views table. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like making full use of yeah all the different AWS services. And like you said before, you, you don't have those individual instances or individual servers to manage anymore. And the, re and the reason that we go into the page views table for the, for the request is because there are, we, we keep track of the average duration and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So we do have to update a previous request. Whereas the um, the browser stats and the country stats they're just they're just uh, tallies, they're just sums. So we don't stress those. And one thing that we also haven't talked about is you know you're relying on a lot of these serverless functions, and something that comes up often is where you're trying to make a request, but it takes time for the instance Cold to kind of spin up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so from the start, Vapor had already solved that. They had a parameter in the YAML file which was just warm up. And um, you put in how many uh, functions you want warmed up, and they do that for you. So they every 10 minutes, they'll send requests to your server to keep them warm. However, as of, I think, what, nine days ago, maybe, AWS has released a new um, setting that allows you to to have, what do they call it? Provision concurrency, it's called. But um, they yeah, they released it. So um, yeah, probably going to be expensive, but... I don't know, to be honest. It's going to be tricky. We're going to see how much it ends up costing. But yeah, at the end yeah. of the day, it's, it's ridiculously valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you've you put a lot of thought into how to architect the system and how to make use of, like, all these serverless features, you know, to reduce, I guess, system administration load on you and, you know, just kind of hand off as much as you can off to Amazon and off to, to Laravel. Yes, that's exactly it. So our time is worth more building the product than it is doing DevOps. You know, it's the equivalent of spending all of our time doing bookkeeping. Do we really want to be doing that? Well, bookkeeping is not too bad, but let's say accounting, like, you know, the tax returns and that kind of thing. We could do it. 100% we could do it. We could learn. Software engineers learn, you know, we just learn quickly. Mm -hmm. um, everyone listening here has learned all sorts of stuff over the years and we can pick stuff up very quickly. But is our time best spent doing this? That's what it comes down to. So we want to maximize the amount of time we spend on the product. And that's how we um, we keep get our product like it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in kind of working in this sort of serverless environment, going forward, if you were working on a new project, would you move straight to serverless? Or are there any kind of reservations or things where you would say that, well, maybe we still need a, a more traditional application? Um, there are definitely use cases where you wouldn't necessarily want to go serverless. The big thing that with serverless is it costs more. Um, there, I mean, if you've got a basic blog, why would you go serverless? Right. Um, yeah, it's there. There are lots of times you wouldn't need to go serverless. Um, I mean, there are infinite use cases where you wouldn't need to go. Mm -hmm. I'd say it's personal decision. I'd say it's also how business critical is your application. Um, yeah, do you like putting out fires? I mean, I've I've been woken up at two a.m. in the morning to fix a server. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, instant adrenaline hit yeah try and go by <laughs> going back to sleep after that yeah so um it's not my cup of tea but some people don't really care if they have downtime um, 
yeah and, and also some people would rather hire someone to do devops or do it themselves and then they'll set up a uh, a series of say five servers under a load balancer and they'll do that mm-hmm. and I, I, i'm not against that really this is a personal preference this is me and me and paul saying we don't want to spend any time doing servers we will pay a premium to have this handled for us that's what it right. comes down to and developers um we're funny because we quite often we get into this um and taylor orwell spoke about this on the indie hackers podcast our um about our pain threshold we will spend five hours on something to save five dollars or, mm-hmm. or something which is just fun, which is just it's very true very true yeah and we do that and uh <laughs> yeah so but with, with this you know we have to focus on the product we can't get distracted by other things we just can't yeah obviously you were saying like if you're just making a blog or something really simple then yeah of course you can host it as a static site or something like that um but for an actual product something that you hope to be a real business it, it sounds like at least your personal preference would be to to find out how can i do this with serverless you know how can i do this without having to manage my own instances uh, personal preference yeah and i'm not trying to piss anyone off and i'm not trying to say that serverless is the best and you should have to go serverless else you're not serious that's not where i'm going with this mm-hmm. it's really what's your appetite for server management right and one of my clients i've just been speaking to about vapor and serverless and they, they're getting sick of servers. They've had a few server issues and they're just, they're tired of it. For mm-hmm. them, they have business critical applications that they don't want to go offline. So mm-hmm. they're saying serverless, let's do it. So yeah, it depends on your appetite for server management. I don't think that serverless is quote unquote better. I just think it's a personal preference. For sure. So we've we've kind of talked uh, quite a bit about the different parts of Fathom and went into building it. Is there there anything else that we missed or anything else you'd just like to, to mention? Hmm. I don't think so. I think one of the big, big, um, one of the, in my notes, one of the big things moving from version two to version three, we introduced a ton of um, automated tests. Test coverage wasn't good in version two. Uh, we now test at a minimum all of our business critical endpoints um, automatically during deployment. We use Chipper CI, and um, all of the, all of our endpoints are tested prior to going live. We didn't have that in version two, so we also focused on tests in version three. So no, I just I'd say anyone that's building with Laravel, check out Laravel Vapor, and yeah, and see see if it's uh, what you're into. Cool. And um, you had mentioned that you have a course coming on building with Laravel Vapor. Uh, where can people go to? Yeah, where can? <laughs> so I th- I think it's yeah serverlesslaravelcourse.com. Um, I'm going to be sending out free tips, uh, writing a few more articles, and uh, eventually I'll be releasing a course on how to use Vapor and a few of the underlying AWS pieces. And then if you want simple analytics, then head to usefathom.com. And a, a tip is if you go to our GitHub repository first, look for the uh, referral link because you'll save $10 on your first invoice. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> cool. And if people want to kind of follow you or see what you're up to, uh, where should they head? Yeah. So for my ramblings, uh, head to Twitter slash Jack Ellis. Very cool. Well, Jack, it's been a pleasure talking to you about uh, rebuilding Fathom. Cheers, Jeremy. The transcript and show notes for this episode can be found at softwaresessions.com. And our theme music is by Crystal Cola. If you enjoyed the show, I hope you'll tell someone else about it. All right, I'll see you next time.